I just want to welcome you to the Cato Institute uh, for our special screening of the film, or should I say Bob Bowden joint, uh, The Ticket, uh, The Many Faces of School Choice. Um, I should probably have looked up the meaning of joint and nobody even laughed, which means you don't remember the Spike Lee, what he used to call it. Anyway, if anybody knows what that means, by the way, you can, you can tell me during the question and answer after the film. Uh, my name is Neil McCluskey. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for Educational Freedom here uh, with me over there, and you're going to learn a lot more about him after the movie, uh, is the director of the film and the founder of the really indispensable Choice Media. Um, and I think that this is, this, I look at it as sort of the Choice Media Web Empire, uh, but it may be too soon to call it a empire, but we're going to talk about that in the question and answer too. Uh, I just want to give you a quick plan for what we're going to do tonight, and then we're going to get right on with the movie. Um, mainly, what we're going to do is hopefully have a movie viewing, a chat, and then a reception. So we're going to start by watching the movie. It runs about 40 minutes or so. Uh, then we're going to have a question and answer with, with Mr. Bowden, and I will be up here, uh, at which point I'll tell you more about him. I'll give you a bio for him. Uh, and we'll chat about the movie and what else he has been up to, what he's doing. Uh, we'll then go to audience Q&A, which is always the most interesting part, especially for people in the audience. Uh, and then, when all that's over, we'll have a reception out in the Winter Garden. Um, I was warned, uh, reminded by Bob, to ask people to turn off their cell phones, which is something I shouldn't have needed a reminder to ask people to do, but please do turn off your cell phones now. I'll give you about 10 seconds, and if you haven't done it by then, you get kicked out. So there's your time, um, and without further ado, lights, camera, action. The ticket to the American dream is a quality education, one that both challenges and motivates a child. School choice is a very American movement. The concept is that when it comes to the education of our children, one size does not fit all. Every year, National School Choice Week celebrates the innovations and variety coming to education. In 2013, the National School Choice Week special crossed the country in a whistle stop train tour, visiting cities where educational alternatives are picking up steam. As you'll see, school choice comes in many different forms. The 2013 National School Choice Week whistle stop tour began in Los Angeles. Back in 2010, California passed a law called the Parent Trigger. A group called Parent Revolution released a video to explain the concept. Your school and your children. This is a historic new day for parents in California. A parent trigger gives parents the power to force major remedies to chronically failing schools, provided a majority of those parents agree on what should be done. The law simply says that if a majority of parents agree on changes to a school, like if they want to find a new principal, replace half of the staff, or even bring in an outside charter group to run the school, they would get their way. The law was written by State Senator Gloria Romero. The way that the trigger works is that parents, 50% plus one, it's a democracy, they get together, they sign a petition, they present it to their governing board, and basically they say, if you, who have the power, won't 
turn around these chronically underperforming schools, then we will. Parent trigger is not a new law, it's a new paradigm. It's a totally different way of thinking about public education and education reform. For the first time in American history, parents now have the legal right to fire the school district if they're not doing a good job. No one would have ever thought that the odds of us passing something as controversial as it was would have ever happened. And I was fortunate enough to walk the halls at the state capitol and I heard all of the things, all of the nasty things that the union said about us. I say, you've had years to do something with it. You've had generations of children that have gone through these crappy buildings that have been failing, chronic dropout factories where you're projecting how many prison beds you're gonna build based on a third grade reading score. That is criminal. A little over an hour east of LA is the Mojave Desert town of Adelanto, California. Desert Trails Elementary was the first school to use the parent trigger, a school that has struggled for years. In the 2012 California Standards Test, or CST, Desert Trails didn't have a single grade in which more than half the students were proficient. Their scores, their test scores, failing seven years in a row, their academic yearly progress reports, academic index reports. This is uh, the API scores for 2011. These are all the schools in the county. Desert Trails rates down here to the very bottom. Uh, from blue being very top to the blue being very bottom here. I realized that my daughter couldn't read. She was in the fifth grade and she couldn't read. We're a group of parents that got tired of the status quo failing our students and that our school has been failing for six years and we had no solution from the district or the, the powers that be, the status quo. So we decided that we needed to stand up and fight for our children. We formed a parent union. We talked to our parents. We grew membership. We um, we found out what parents wanted to see in the school and from that we made a, a petition campaign. It was hard work. We knocked on many doors. When I was approached by uh, Doreen and Cynthia, you know, hey, this was going on, I, I had already, you know, knew the school was failing is what made it so easy for me to, to join. I'm not against public education, I'm against public schools failing. That's what I'm against. The Adelanto parents face opposition primarily from the local teachers union. But in the end, after lawsuits and contentious school board meetings, the parents prevailed. We're moving forward, we're gonna open a school next year. How much more exciting can that be? The kids are excited, a lot of the parents are excited. What these parents at Desert Trails have done, what parents across LA, across California, and across America are, are beginning to do is stand up and say enough is enough. We are not going to take this anymore. We can't wait. We're, <laughs> it's beyond um, exciting at this point to get to just to know next year we're going to be able to take a breath of fresh air and know the students, I'm shaking, <laughs> know the students are going to be able to have a, an actual future and education and a <laughs> After California, the train moves to Kansas and eventually the capital city of Topeka. Topeka was the place where a third grade girl named Linda Brown, along with her parents, were perhaps the first nationally known advocates for school choice. Linda's father, Oliver Brown, wondered why Linda should have to travel farther to the segregated Monroe Elementary when an all-white Sumner Elementary was closer. And so Oliver and 12 other Topeka parents became plaintiffs for a court case which became known as Brown versus Board of Education. Underpinned by race, it was a case about school choice. 
I think if we go back to 1952 and those those families that were you know part of the Brown case here in Topeka, you know they were trying to make a decision about school choice. They wanted to attend the their local elementary school. They didn't want to have their kids go across town. Issues of school choice live on today in Kansas. But for Rick Mitchell, his choice wasn't about getting his seven kids into a public school. Six shown here, it was about getting them out. For the longest time, we were anti-homeschool. We felt like people who homeschool, they're secluded, they hunker down, they don't want to be with the rest of the world, and we just didn't want any part of that. We always felt like um, we should insulate our kids, but not isolate them. I don't think any of our kids were challenged enough. Um, they were all doing well in school, um, getting good grades, uh, had zero homework ever, which they loved. Um, but it did concern me a little bit that with hardly any effort, they were flying through their classes and doing just fine. Well, like, I kind of felt like I wasn't learning anything. Like I was kind of dumb, almost. And then when I came to homeschool, I was learning like a lot. My daughter has already taken a couple of college classes um, online through Clovis Community College. The goal is that she'll have her associate's degree by the time she graduates from high school. We believe sports is a big deal. Uh, it really helps those kids that are interested in that. So we've started our own athletic program. I used to be a high school basketball coach and athletic director, and so we've done it before, so we'll, we're doing it again. The most common question about homeschooling is that while kids may get book smart, do they have enough social interaction with other kids? Well, the assumption to that question is that the public schools do a good job of socialization. It's not that we're saying you can't learn in the public schools, but for most of us, we want our children to have that sense of, of wonder and joy and to see maybe a little bit of innocence in what some people say that we're guilty of. Okay, <laughs> you know, what's wrong with that? Some writers, ranging from Shakespeare to Virginia Woolf. John Personally, I don't really have a problem with that. I'm a pretty outgoing person. Um, you know, I work, I have a job, um, I'm a waiter, and I don't have any problems socializing with guests, making conversation or small talk or anything. I don't have problems fitting in with kids my own age, you know. Aside from the fact that I don't go to school with them, I'm, you know, it's, there's not a lot of differences, you know. I've heard the same stereotypes other people had, that they weren't going to be around other kids. They didn't know how to act or in public or communicate with others. And so I was worried about that. But playing um, city sports, doing different classes and different organizations. My kids are playing sports basketball here with this team. Um, my daughter's played basketball. She's on the cheerleading with this team. They can get involved in plays or debate or whatever they want to do. This is called TLC, so it's the Learning Co-op. Um, we have a support group here in Lawrence for homeschoolers. It's about 100 families. I started this as um, a way of moms with younger kids to get together so that one time a week they can do enrichment activities. Um, in the local area, we actually have orchestras, strings, band, choir. Um, there is a speech and debate club. Um, you know, usually the kids are in dance lessons, piano lessons, you know, so kids have, get a lot of socialization. From Topeka, we head about 60 miles east on the train to Kansas City, Missouri, 
The Kansas City Public Schools have been trouble for a long time. In 2012, the Kansas City Star ran an unusual headline that Steve Green, the city school superintendent, said Kansas City was not the worst school district in the country. This had to do with Education Secretary Arnie Duncan's reference to the district's 60% dropout rate between 9th and 12th grade. The Kansas City schools have been broken for so many decades. The people that give themselves these enormous, exorbitant salaries, let's talk about that. But the last thing you do when nothing else works is you have to let the children go. The children have the right to leave this district, this failing district, and go to a district that works. Back in the 90s, the Missouri State Legislature passed a novel idea. Students trapped in a failing school district could transfer across school lines, across district lines, into an accredited school district, inter-district choice. The problem in Kansas City is that this has been held up in the courts and not a single student has been able to transfer to a better school. Well, the unaccredited district, Kansas City does not want to lose those students because by losing students they lose money. There are districts surrounding them that willingly will take these students and, and welcome them to, to, to educate them. But the Kansas City district has said we're only going to pay 3000 per student. They know offering $3,000 is not going to be accepted by Independence or by Blue Springs or, or any school district in suburban Kansas City. And so it's a way for Kansas City to be able to say, see, it's not our fault, they won't take our kids, when the reality is they know that's not what the law says. The formula in the law is very clear for determining what the tuition costs should be. Um, but it's an effort to keep, to keep kids trapped in their failed school district. Self-preservation. But here's the good news. Even though it's been held up in Kansas City in the courts and that the district is only offering $3,000 to students who want to transfer, in other parts of the state, students are finally getting the chance to transfer out of their failing school districts and into a better school district because of a 2013 Supreme Court ruling. This law now is allowing students to transfer to better schools. We knock on the doors, we talk to the parents, we uh, tell them what the current situation is, we tell them uh, that they do have the right to transfer, they have the right to stay. We, we are the information providers. We're in the middle, we don't try to sway them one way or the other. We just want them to know what their options are. Like at this school I'm at now, they care. I mean, like I can actually go to the classroom and have a teacher know me by my first and last name and welcome me into the classroom and ask me if I need help, help me stay after school for however long I need it. But at Riverview Gardens, they just didn't care. I feel like where I live, Riverview Gardens has had more than enough time. So if we have to get up, which is what we do at four o'clock in the mornings now, for her to get a bus to school at 6.05 and be transported 20 miles from home, then that's what we have to do. So there are about 2,600 students that applied for inter-district choice in the St. Louis area, um, which represents about 25% of the eligible students, which is a pretty significant number, um, a pretty significant portion, I think, and speaks pretty clearly to what the how horrible the conditions in those two districts must be for kids uh, if 25% of them um, fled in the six weeks that since the doors were open for them to leave. From Kansas City, the train heads to Chicago, where charter schools are on the agenda. To understand the story, you first need to know how the district schools are doing. This is the website for the National Center for Education Statistics, and it shows how Chicago kids did on the U.S. Department of Education's NAEP test in 2011, also called the nation's report card. Chicago kids testing proficient in math, only 20%.
one in five. In reading, 21% of eighth graders are proficient. Science proficiency came in at 7%. This is part of why the Chicago Charter School enrollment has nearly doubled in just the last five years, now serving 52,000 kids. About 400 of them attend the Perspectives Charter School's Joslin campus. You know, there are 400,000 students in Chicago public schools. And when people say, why not do something else? I say, well, are you waiting for your child? Are you, are you keeping your child involved in a school that is underperforming, that is dangerous? Or did you take your child and figure out how to get them into a selective enrollment school, a magnet school, or pay for private school? So if your child is not sitting in a school where they are being tortured and be having their education and their lives robbed from them, don't talk to me about what should be going on with or without charter schools. The fact is a law was passed and it is in effect. 50,000 students and 50,000 parents have chosen to send their children to charter schools. And it's my responsibility to make sure that they get the best education possible. I'm not willing to write off these children's lives while politicians and everybody else figures out what to do with Chicago public schools. They're here, they're here today, and we're gonna save as many of them as we can. You're not nobody here, you're somebody, and they pay attention to who you are. It's unbelievable how well they know you. You feel like you can connect with your teachers. I think at the charter schools, they help you more. Like, they actually stay at the school and they make sure that you get your work done, make sure you make up work, take tests and all that. And then at Chicago Public Schools, you're just on your own. If my son was not here, he would be in a underperforming school, high school that is on probation. I'm not going to name the school, but that's or the district that we're in, that's where he would be. And why would I want to put my son in a school that he's not going to get every advantage possible? That's my son. Some people accuse charter schools of what's known as cherry picking, that they only accept the best kids or they turn away special needs students so they'll get better scores. You know, they always accuse the charters of cherry picking. But it, almost all of that is done, almost all charter selection, particularly in, in low-income areas, is done by lottery selection. So you can't really say that if you're selected by lottery, you're cherry-picking. I actually think it might be more accurate to say there's a reverse cherry-picking going on. Charter schools are already engaging in a great deal of remediation for kids who have already had a bad experience in the, uh, in, in the public system. And again, this is primarily true, and it's most importantly true, in the low-income segment. We have above average amount of special needs students versus Chicago public schools. There are 12 or 13 percent, we're at 14, 15, 16 percent. We open enrollment completely and CPS checks our application process. The only thing that we can ask families is your name and address to confirm residency and the grade level of students coming in. If that's cherry picking, I'm unaware of what uh, success looks like then. Perspectives Charter School teaches students more than academics. They also teach a philosophy called a disciplined life, or ADL. When I read about a disciplined life, and then I had a friend that was teaching here, and then I was like, is it really like that? Or is it just kind of like, that's what it says on the website? She was like, no, like this would be a perfect fit for you. So when I came here, and then it really is like a family. And like you hear even the kids talk about like, this is our family, and we gotta take care of our family and our home. That's why I never left, because it works for me.
eighty five percent to ninety five percent of our students are low or very low income and we serve communities where the crime rates are among the highest in chicago and the children have to really navigate a storm to get to school but our attendance rates are 93, 94, 95% because students want to come to school. They know that school is a safe place where they're going to be able to learn and grow as individuals, so they fight their way to get there. I think perspectives offer a wide range of values and it teaches self-discipline, which <clears throat> is something a lot of kids need, um, and hope. <clears throat> perspectives give students hope. And that is something that every kid needs. I believe the scariest thing is a kid walking down the street without hope. If charters are the most talked about form of school choice in America, vouchers are the second most. Vouchers are simply tax dollars that follow a student to a private school of the parent's choice. The city of Cleveland, Ohio has had vouchers since 1995. Private schools often have the flexibility to implement new methods and rules that public school bureaucracies may take years to incorporate, if ever. One such private school is St. Martin de Porres. It's based on a unique concept, a work-study program for high school kids, where they go to school four days a week, and one day a week, they learn the culture and demands of a professional job. This is exclusively for uh, low-income kids. We like to say it's a very exclusive school. If you can afford the tuition, you can't come. In the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, it's a, it's about 54% high school graduation rate. So looking at 100 seniors who start their first day of school in the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, about 54 of them will graduate. So we're graduating at about a 97% rate. 100% of them are getting accepted to college. St. Martin de Porres High School allows our students the opportunity to work in businesses in the greater Cleveland area. Uh, they work in a job team, mostly in entry-level work um, in, in each of the businesses. Uh, they get an appreciation of what it means to work eight hours. Uh, and they, I think they learn, you know, that there's a sort of a, a term that in education is kind of catching on, is, is grit. They have the grit to continue. Uh, and, and that's something they learn at work. I work for three years. I work for the water department, Northeast Regional Sewer District. Well, I work at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Now I can say I'm 18 and I work at a law firm. Then this year I decided to go into the medical field, so now I work at Euclid General by uh, VA uh, High School, and I transport dead people to the morgue. Yeah, so that's it. Today was our alumni brunch day and so when we have over a hundred alumni coming back to our school and telling us about their success stories in college we hear how it's different. We will account for every nickel we um, secure from you, we will account for every nickel we secure from the state and we will produce students that can succeed. To me that's a model that needs to be looked at and one that um, supports the notion of having the money follow the child. A voucher coming to us isn't taking money from anybody. It, it, it's redirecting it, perhaps. So, you know, a, a school district may not get the money, but they don't also get the student. So, you know, if you're dropping 10,000 students and you're putting them into another system, that other system is getting money. The other thing is, from a government point of view, why not pay $5,000 to St. Martin de Porres High School or any other voucher school in the, in the city of Cleveland? And for that, you get 100% high school graduation rate, and perhaps down the road, six years out, 40 or 50% getting a college degree versus 
$9,000 or $10,000 into a, a public school system where the graduation rate is 54% and the chance of a college degree six years out is 7%. So without a voucher, I would have never been able to go to a private school just because the cost and like my mom has to pay rent and everything while I'm still in high school. She would have been able to afford high school tuition on top of college tuition. Vouchers gave me the chance to go outside of Glenville and go to a private school and receive a private education. We don't stop people at the door. So when people say, you know, the separation of church and state, about 86% of our students are not Catholic. So we're here to educate and to help our students obtain an education for the next part of their lives for college and post-secondary success. It's a really great school, honestly. I didn't expect it to be this good. I can say there's two things at this school that we have that, that really make this thing work. They're both four-letter words. One is work, both school work and work work, and the other one's love. And we just love them and stay with them. And I live in the ghetto. Um, every day I see people on the streets my age doing drugs and you know, just throwing the life away. Recently, this year, two of my friends have been shot and killed. Um, one was shot at her own birthday party, and the other one was shot by a drive-by shooting. And it is, it's really sad. Being where I am today is a miracle, because not a lot of kids will have this opportunity, and they don't have those parents that care, and they don't have the love and the nurture that this school provides and a family provides. If they're like most, um they wouldn't have happy endings. Uh, they're, they'd most likely be involved in some kind of criminal justice system, detention, prison, whatever. Uh, and not because they're bad people, because we just saw what they could do. It's because it's just a desperate, uh, kind of hopeless situation. School and education, to me, is the only way out. And we just need good schools. And uh, we're not the only one, but we're a good one. And without the voucher or without, without a, a sense of uh, uh, allowing us to exist, if you will, uh, in this situation, uh, I don't think they'd have a chance. The train ride from Cleveland to Erie, Pennsylvania takes us to the fastest growing form of school choice on our trip. And some would say the one with the most potential to revolutionize public education, online learning. The state of Pennsylvania has now authorized 16 different cyber charter schools. One such institution is 21st Century Cyber Charter School, which can offer education to any student in Pennsylvania. A cyber charter school is a school of choice that is operated in an online environment. Our school is operated in an asynchronous environment, which means it's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and uh, parents choose to come to the school. There's a population of students that pick it because they're pursuing other interests, they're acting, skiing, whatever it is they're doing, and they're pursuing that at such high levels that they need to train during the day, and that traditional, you know, nine to three model just doesn't fit them. Other kids pick it, and I've noticed kind of an increase in this reason. Um, they've been bullied or picked on at school, and they're just not comfortable at school anymore. I'd say another reason, students that want to excel, they don't want to go at the pace that the class is going, they want to go more quickly, and this allows them to do that because they can move at their own pace. We are a school of mastery, which is a very different model from, I think, many, many traditional schools, in the sense that students are allowed to resubmit to improve 
on a, an assignment. So if a student, generally we'd like to see all of our students at about 80% in terms of a grade for an assignment because otherwise they haven't mastered the concept and they don't know the skills. And I'm comfortable with students resubmitting work even though that's not the traditional model because as a teacher my ultimate goal is that students will learn and will be able to grasp the concept. Each of our students is assigned a learning coach who is a certified teacher but in this role is acting kind of as that child's advisor and that family's point of contact. That learning coach stays with them through all of middle school or through all of high school. And it, it just works out so well because when you make the transition into cyber, it's difficult and confusing and can, be, can feel a little scary. So this person is kind of your hand holder to get you through. The idea um, that cyber school is called an impersonal is absolutely false. If you go into our middle school virtual office on a Friday at 4 o'clock when it's closing, you will hear the students groaning because they have to log off. We have clubs available to them. We have community outreaches that they physically um, attend. They come to physically attend our field trips. Do you remember what the difference is between a prime and a composite number? We had gone to a, actually a church function and Peter had a lot of questions for Mrs. Frank about how the school worked, what the students did. I, I would say that we weren't exactly ready to try it at that point in time. I don't know that I knew enough about it, um, but as the school progressed, the school year progressed for Peter, we decided that maybe it would be something that we would look into for him and, and we decided to let him give it a try and he really liked it. My understanding is that he was getting frustrated with the slow pace of education in the classroom. And uh, there were times that he was um, reading books that were not class-related books during the, the instruction periods. Sometimes in school, if I would like have like if I needed help, I would raise my hand, and it would take like 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 a long time for the teacher to get around to me. Sometimes they never got around to me, and then the class was over, so I would never get help. And then at night, the homework was really really hard because I didn't get help on it. But here. I raise my hand and then within a couple minutes I get help. You just click like a button and it raises your hand and stuff. It's really cool. I like it. If I can draw any comparison and uh, I'll use some of what my sister does, she's also an educator and she is in a brick and mortar school, is she doesn't have the ability to individualize the education as much as we do. Uh, so it, you know, in a group setting she's pretty much focused on teaching one particular thing to a group of 30 students say. Uh, whereas my day I might teach 30 different things to 30 different students. All right, so, um, neutral but anyhow from what we saw like we were just looking at everything in the first place war is bad news for in our world our doors our windows our, our classes are always open so everybody can see it the principal of the school is always in the classroom and can see that teacher that's shining or the teacher that's struggling some of us are still stuck in a model of teaching like we did 50, 60, 100 years ago and that doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it's not a cohesive plan to get our kids where they need to be. You know, we see on TV we're falling behind but we've got to change the way we do things to change the result. The School Choice Express rolls out of Erie, Pennsylvania on to Rochester, New York, the home city of Susan B. Anthony, the American most associated with women getting the right to vote. It turns out she was also an education reformer. 
Susan B. Anthony believed that every human being should have access to education. And in her time, often people didn't get access because they couldn't pay for it and it wasn't always available. She started her career as a school teacher. Education was one of her great passions. And at that point in time, public education wasn't assured or guaranteed, and women weren't assured education. The goal of a quality education for all continues today in Rochester, which is why we visited Hope Hall, a private school focused on teaching kids with special needs. It is every day a miracle. I think it's a miracle, as you saw today, where all these high school students come in here and sit down, and they're quiet, and they're listening, and they're getting a, a daily lesson every day from Sister Diana. Everybody, what's this word? Empathy. Everybody, what's this word? Empathy. Okay. Empathy is not an easy thing to do. Anybody who was here last year knows that when we started working at it in May, it was tough. Does anybody who was here last year, can you remember what empathy means? Okay, Jonathan? It's like saying that putting yourself in other people's shoes. Put yourself in people's shoes, okay? Give me another another meaning for this. That's an excellent one. Marcus? I'm going to feel what the other person's feeling, like you know how they're feeling, so you treat them the way that they want to be treated. Exactly. Just try to feel how another person is feeling. It's absolutely miraculous to see them repeat those uh, very words that she gives them in the morning and to live those rules. Children who attend Hope Hall, they have learning disabilities. They don't have behavioral issues. So now in your public schools, you're all grouped together. So your needs still are not being met within the classroom. The idea to form a school was born out of a need that there were a large number of children who were simply falling through the cracks. Their ability was too high to qualify them for regular special ed services, but their ability was too low to make it in regular classroom settings. It, they were the kids who were struggling just to make a D or an F, giving up on themselves. And I knew that if we taught them differently, if we taught them the way they needed to be taught, smaller setting, hands-on, break things down into smaller pieces. They could learn as much and as well as everyone else. Ready, begin. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. A lot of them were bullied. Kids would throw things at them, make fun of them, call them stupid, call them retarded. There's a lot of sadness. Um, it's They don't believe in themselves. They don't think that they can learn. They don't see a future. Sometimes, depending on the neighborhood they live in, they don't really think that they're going to see 30 years old. So it's a matter of saying, life is worth living, and you are talented. Here's your talent. So how are we going to get you there? We'll help you plan. Since coming here, they have reduced the stress level. There's no more crying at night that they don't want to go to school. There's no more fights to go to school or counting down how many days they have until they get a vacation. Every day, they look forward to coming to school. My arms are full of children every single day, and I am so blessed to have those children in my arms. And I think that that's a unique component, that if, if the child knows that you love them, and if child can trust that you are doing the best for them, then they're going to be able to kind of set aside those barriers or that message, I can't, I can't, I can't. All of a sudden, it's being like, Mrs. Bates believes that I can. 
They're amazing. They are so brilliant. It's just that they needed a different way to learn. You get what you need. If you need a break or something, they'll give it to you. If you need more help, they'll give it to you. And at my old school, you didn't. They pushed you right along. But here, everybody is treated special. I was very far behind, and I was failing a lot of things. And they kept moving me along. But here, I've been passing immensely. I've been getting 98s to 100s every time. Numerous times, my kids sat in the classroom at the desk crying. And I remember one time, me just stopping by the school, and I just saw my son crying, and I said, what is wrong? And I was in tears, and he said, Mom, I don't understand. In the regular public school system, social promotion definitely happens. Um, students are just moved on um, without necessarily understanding the concept. That does not happen. Do two of these, feed them to you on the oscillator, okay? Just stand them. Leave me an inside line. Unlike Cleveland and other places where government money helps pay for private schools, Hope Hall relies on a combination of donations and tuition paid by parents. You spend the money working with the children, not with inflating salaries, not with having 15 secretaries for every administrator, not for having all this other horsing around that goes on. There's, there's wanton waste in the public system. The progress is outstanding. The commitment from the teachers and the organization is outstanding to me. I will not trade this for none in the world for my children. They love our kids, and I, I love the school. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I do. I, I love the school. And it's, there's so much that, you know, if they all the schools, if the city school was like this, then I wouldn't have nothing to worry about. But I had to find this school. And I really, really love this school. They're doing a wonderful job, wonderful job. I mean, I, I, sometimes I can't even talk because it's like everything you expected from your child, you're getting it here. You're getting it here. Whether through parent trigger, homeschooling, district choice, charter schools, vouchers, online learning, or private scholarships, school choice in America is growing for a simple reason. No one group can be the best at providing every possible form of education that a particular kid might need. That's why School Choice is on a roll. After spending four years as a Rochester School Board member, you know, I am, it's my firm belief that the only way, the only way out of this mess is School Choice. Charter schools, vouchers, parent trigger, you know, those, a whole host of, these are the things I think that would are the only things that would really turn the system around. I believe that school choice is an opportunity for children to leave a failing situation and go to a proven results-oriented district that has demonstrated it can educate children. One of the things most powerful about the school choice movement is its uh, diversity. Not only racial and ethnic diversity, but intellectual and ideological diversity. Um, and you know, we may not all agree on you know every aspect of what school choice means, but I, I think that the sort of mosaic of all of our work adds up to uh, you know the, the whole is greater than the sum of all of our work. Uh, and I, this movement is becoming not just politically powerful, but morally undeniable.
So I'll ask a few questions, then I'm going to kick it out to, to the audience. Um, first, though, let me just give you a quick uh, bio for Bob. Uh, he's been a television producer, reporter, and commentator for the past 15 years. Uh, his varied career has seen him conducting in-depth on-camera interviews, anchoring newscasts, and producing nationally syndicated TV shows. And most interestingly, he's even appeared in satirical news sketches for the Onion News Network. So many of you probably recognize him from that work. Um, he is also the director of the award-winning film, The Cartel, which many of you probably have seen, uh, and is the founder of Choice Media. Uh, the latter is constantly adding new features, which brings me to my first totally unrehearsed uh, question for Bob. Bob, before we talk about the film, what's going on at Choice Media? Uh, fill us in. Tell us what's happening. Well, first I want to say thank everyone for coming. Um, the problem with school choice is it's taking money away from the public schools, which need to be given more money. Sorry, this is Bill de Blasio's notes. I accidentally got the mayor of New York's <laughs> notes. And just a little joke. Thank you. So, no, uh, so, right, so uh, my view in the last four or five years of my career is that education is the least covered subject in the American media. That it, when it does get coverage, it's generally sensational and superficial in nature. It's school shootings. It's... Uh, teacher sex with student stories and whatnot. And so we decided, you know, if you're going to create a media entity in the 21st century, you would do one that is online. And so that's what we've done. We have, uh, it's called Choice Media. We have a robust Twitter feed. We have a daily newswire. And we've just launched, as of two weeks ago, uh, a daily TV-style news show. It's a video webcast every day. And if you think there's not enough to talk about, that's what I might have thought, too, before we did it. And so that's what, uh, that's what we've done. It's called Reform School. And we uh, actually originally had done a, uh, a, a PBS pilot uh, along these lines. And then we found that the folks at PBS were, you know, found our content to be a little too free market, maybe, perhaps. I'd say <laughs> say it's not so. I know, I know. It's no, shocking. Really... There's a uh, gambling in Casablanca. <laughs> but the uh, but so anyway so this is just to quickly show you this is our homepage we have basically news on the left and opinion on the right and so this reform school program is our daily web show uh, which you can see there on the left and then we also have just scroll down a little more I want to show you guys just a couple other features uh, there is uh, we have guest videos every day by the way Bill Gates uh, talking about Common Core and I'm sure Neil would love to to hear more about that but we also have uh, this interactive tool on the bottom left, which is a map of the U.S. You can pick any state in America and see education policy news just about that state. There's no other tool like it uh, in the world, basically, on the Internet. And then we also have a calendar of Ed Reform events, which uh, many of them are webinars, that, and many of them are in D.C. when they're not webinars, and they're also big conferences, and so that's, that's fairly unique, too. But so I just wanted to kind of plug that. I don't, someone name a state. New Hampshire. New Hampshire? Oh, okay. Our friend Kate Baker's from New Hampshire. We actually had her on. You, do you know Kate? Great. Can we, you guys want to click on New Hampshire? There we are. Oh, hidden Maine. There so, we are. It's a geography test. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, see, it's easy. Just uh, do it that way. There we are. So we have, this is all of our uh, news flow pertaining to education reform with respect to a small population state, dare I say, if I, if I may say so. But nevertheless, uh, this is what we do, and this is, and, and part of my reason for coming here is also because this reform school project is a big, a big thing for us, and so uh, we're looking for partners to help distribute it. It's brand new as a daily TV-style news show about education reform, and you know our expertise is not uh, is not uh, 
crowd building and you know, group coalition building, it's media creation. So we're looking for partners to help us with the reform school program, but nevertheless, we're, we're, uh, we're proud of the work. Now, uh, I get to play talk show host every once in a while. Um, I understand you also have some video content on there. Uh, recently, the president said something that was uh, probably inaccurate about vouchers, and so I can play uh, the talk show host. I believe we have a clip. Indeed. All right, uh, they could just roll it. Yeah, go ahead. This is a recent video re we released. Why do you oppose school vouchers when it would give poor people a chance to go to better schools? Actually, the, every study that's been done on school vouchers, Bill, says that it has very limited impact, if any. Try it. On It has been tried. It's been tried in Milwaukee. It tried. It's been right tried here. right here in D.C. And it worked here. No, actually it didn't. When you end up taking a look at it, it didn't actually make that much of a difference. So what we have been supportive of is uh, something called charters, which within the public school system gives the opportunity for creative experiments by teachers, by principals, to, to start schools that have a different approach. And You we, wouldn't revisit that? I, the, I just uh, think, uh, yeah, I used to be teaching a Catholic school, Bill, and I just know that Bill, that I've taken a look at it. As a general proposition, vouchers has not significantly improved the performance of kids that are in these poorest well, communities. Get them some, better some, charters, some charters are doing great. Right. Some Catholic schools do a great job. But what we have to do is make sure every child I is getting i got three more questions. Go ahead. Mr. President, I'm Paul Peterson. I'm a professor at Harvard University, and I've done a study of school vouchers in New York City. I did it some time ago, so we are now able to trace what's happened to the kids who got school vouchers and when they were young kids, and now they're in college, and some of them are. And if they got the voucher, they are 25% more likely to go to college than those who didn't win the lottery and, and didn't get the voucher. And these are kids that are just exactly the same. The only difference between them is the lottery this is a pretty big effect, increasing the chances of going to college by 25%. I, I, I wish your advisors would help you out a little better so that you'd be better prepared when you talk about school vouchers, because I think you're making some mistakes. Mr. President, my name is Patrick Wolf. I'm a professor of education policy at the University of Arkansas in the Department of Education Reform. And I actually led a longitudinal evaluation of the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program for your Department of Education. Uh, I know you said that uh, all of the voucher studies show that these programs have very limited impact, if any, uh, but our study showed some clear impacts. And I would argue, and I think anyone would argue, that some of them were very large. Um, basically, we found that certain subgroups of students uh, experienced achievement gains in reading that were equivalent to a gain of about a month of learning per year in the program. You might say that's limited, but that's a month of learning that they wouldn't have had if they hadn't had this school choice opportunity. And if we go beyond test scores, which you and your Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan, have urged us to do and to focus on high school graduation and college enrollment as far more important student outcomes, we see very large positive effects of the DC voucher program. The effect of using an opportunity scholarship was to increase the likelihood of a student graduating from high school by 21 percentage points 
from 70% to 91%, almost a guarantee of graduation for these low-income inner-city kids. So you, you, you offer that to a parent, to a low-income urban parent, an additional month of learning for their child and a dramatically higher probability of graduating high school, and they'll sign up in a minute. Hi, I'm Greg Forster. I'm a senior fellow at the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice. I just heard the president claim that all of the studies on school vouchers find limited effects or even no effects on educational outcomes for students. And he also claimed that there are no significant effects for educational outcomes. I've done a study called a win-win solution in which I look at all of the empirical research that's been done on school choice programs like vouchers and that kind of uh, program. Uh, in, among uh, students who are using the school vouchers, 11 out of 12 standard, uh, studies using gold standard methods of uh, empirical research find positive impacts on student outcomes. In some cases, the size of the outcome is quite large. Uh, and among uh, studies looking at the impact on public schools, 22 out of 23 studies find that public schools improve in educational outcomes, again, sometimes in quite large amounts uh, from the presence of school voucher and related programs. Uh, and in both cases, there have been no negative findings. So the empirical research on school choice simply does not line up with what the president said. So that's, thank you. That's wonkier than some of the stuff that we do, but I thought for this esteemed audience here, it would be appropriate to, to, to play. Yeah, our, our audience can always handle upper level sort of thought and discussion, so that was really perfect. Um, now, just a few kind of personal questions, but I'm just sort of curious, how did you get involved in, in covering education? Are you some sort of glutton for punishment, or how did this happen? Well, I mean, I had been a TV reporter and host do, working for Bloomberg Television covering uh, business news, and uh, I hosted a PBS series. It was a public policy debate series. Uh, but I had then a, a close personal friend who got a job as left television. She'd been a TV producer, uh, uh, too, but she got a job as a high school English teacher in an inner city school, and I started hearing her stories on a daily basis. And I just started to dawn on me, I don't think a lot of people know what's going on in high schools today. A lot of the stuff that I was hearing just seemed impossible. It's some of the tenure stories, for example, some of the dysfunctional teachers who just can't be fired or they're left in rubber rooms for decades, 20 years. There's a teacher in New York City who has been in, uh, going to rubber rooms, not showing up to the classroom, they can't fire them, and they just continue to get a paycheck and they read the newspaper. Hmm. So, but, but even much worse stories than, than that affecting kids. I guess that doesn't affect kids so much directly when they're just uh, in the rubber room. But anyway, so, so, so this personal account led me to think uh, this subject needs the kind of long-form treatment that, the, that, the, that a documentary can provide, uh, uh, meaning not just an anecdote of this school or a story about this principal or this teacher, but a, to tell the system story. So that's what I, that's what I tried to do. So what was your inspiration for to do the ticket? And then what, what was the biggest impression that doing that left with you? It dawned on me that all of these different school choice movements have not only been seen as separate, but sometimes rival factions, the internecine wars between the segments where the charter people were at war with the voucher people because, you know, and they would 
uh, I've kind of sometimes accidentally been involved in some of this, by the way. And then the homeschoolers want nothing to do with the first two groups. And then sometimes the online learning uh, people touch the first uh, groups I named, but other times they're their own entity. And, and then interdistrict choice people will, will uh, advocate that, but they'll be against charters and vouchers. And it dawned on me that this umbrella term, school choice, because there's, there's this once a year, this school choice week, that this term encompassed uh, uh, not just all these movements uh, from kind of a a fact that they can all be invited to be part of that week, but in fact that there's a principle underlying all the movements, which is that if you give power to parents, you disaggregate power, allow individual parents to make their own separate decisions, that's healthier than giving power to bureaucracy. Disaggregating power is healthier than consolidating power. If you believe that, if that's that's all you need to believe, then you're for all this stuff. You're for charters, you're for vouchers, you're for homeschooling, you're for online learning, you're for inter-district choice. You believe that individual parents can make decisions uh, better. And and the stories are all the same. You know, in other words, uh, the people that oppose school choice, my dream is that they have to listen to some of these kids. The girls saying, now in my school now, they actually know my name. Before, in the district I was in, they didn't. Now, I mean, who was she secret paid operative by, you know, right-wing zealots to, you know, give her scripts to read on cue? No. If a girl is saying it, it's a miracle, her word. Two of her friends have been shot and killed the same year. She says the fact I'm in this private voucher school now in Cleveland is a miracle. Are we scripting her? They have no answer to these people. And these people span the movement. There are all kinds of reasons that kids are... Well, let's take the last example where, I get very emotional, by the way. But the last example of the, of the special needs school in Rochester. The, there were kids and parents telling me that they had been left to basically just in a Rochester school, tr- traditional public school, where they were just told, you're special needs, you're off the books, shut up, be quiet, don't bother me, sit in the corner, and you don't matter, you don't count. And many of these kids, by the way, are actually smart, they just might have learning disabilities of some kind, dyslexia or other communication difficulties. It doesn't, it doesn't speak to their IQ. But that said, uh, all these kids, though, are going to have lives. They, they have the potential to have jobs and have rewarding uh, you know, lives with families. And, and they should be basically just told, you don't count, shut up, sit in the corner when there's a school that for half the price will actually teach them. So. so the opponents of school choice have no answer to these people. And, and the fact is that, these, that the stories, to, to answer your question, the stories are so, are so similar that I don't know how you watch all them and you leave all of that saying, well, I'm for this form of choice, but I'm against that form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, we're guilty sometimes of being involved in, in the debates, but ultimately it's not about opposing any particular form of choice. It's talking about... What's the best way forward? And, and I hope that we don't spend a whole lot of time bickering with each other instead of saying, look, let's get together, let's talk about what's the next move, what's the best way to go forward. Um, now, my next question will be my last question. We'll kick it off to Q&A, but maybe the most important. Uh, do you wish that this interview had taken place between two ferns? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Not everybody's watching the internet, I guess. So, no, that's all I really had. So, um, so now we will, uh, there are like three people who know what I'm talking about, unfortunately. But um, so I'm gonna, we're going to do audience Q&A. What I'd ask is you raise your hand. 
Uh, I will call on you and then please wait. We have uh, two people here with microphones. Wait till the microphone arrives. Then as always, please restrict yourself to a question, not a soliloquy. Uh, if you do launch into a very long speech, uh, odds are I'll let you go for a few. Well, I wish. Um, there are insurance issues with that. Um, but I'll probably let you go for a minute or two, but then I really will cut you off. So with that, are there any questions? Just raise your hand. And there's one right almost in the middle. Um, any one of you guys can go up take it, and just please wait for the microphone. Hello, my name is Richard Osborne, um, and uh, other than the fact that I went to school, I really have not no particular expertise. But when I follow this uh, question of school choice in the newspapers, it does seem as though the greatest resistance actually doesn't come from the poor communities. It seems to come from the middle class communities and the upper middle class communities. Can you just comment about that and what you think would have to, is it, is it just simply the fact that the school system is, is actually doing a pretty good job for those, for those groups? I mean, do you see this as being a, a much more important um, approach for, the, for the, the, the poorer districts than from the, the wealthier districts? Please comment on that. Right. So it's certainly true that there's opposition from all the social strata. I would say the largest, the most opposition is from teachers' unions. I mean, like, let, let's face it, that's where a lot of the money comes to trash this stuff. That's why Bill de Blasio is, you know, basically angling for his re-election money from the UFT right now. Uh, so there's that. But there certainly are cases where um, wealthier segments have opposed school choice because they say, well, we don't need it here. Our schools are good. And oftentimes it's because they have uh, a, a uh, they feel they've spent a lot of money for a home in a neighborhood because of those schools, and so if you kind of in a sense have paid for and invested in an elite educational better school district, and they kind of feel that if all the schools got great, right? Then they would lose the value of this, uh, that they invested in their home. There's, th there's that argument anyway. Uh, there's, also, there's also the case that um, people, many people are, you know, if they have a daughter as a teacher or a son or their you know, husband or wife or teachers or whatever, they, they feel that it's a threat to their own livelihood, that the competition may take away enrollment and therefore there will be you know, layoffs at the school and therefore it will threaten their way of life. And they may have mortgages and kids in college and their own reasons why they feel like they're just protecting their own family income. And so they defend it for that reason. Um, uh, so I, I'm, I'm, there's, there are lots of, for, in, for example, in New Jersey, there was a, uh, early on, Chris Christie was advocating school choice and, and charter schools everywhere anyway. He authorized, his Department of Education authorized a suburban uh, charter school. They got pushed back from the right flank. People in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, saying, oh, we don't need that here. That's going to hurt the jobs of my sons and daughters who work in the school. Or, and so they basically pulled away. And they now officially will say they support school choice in the places that need it, meaning we're not going to let parents decide. We're not going to let the charter live or die based on whether there's demand. We're going to just only uh, pick the poor towns to, pl to place them. So there, are, there have been political triangulations like that. Okay, next question. Uh, we'll go up front here, then we'll hit the back next. Hello, I'm Betty Cook. I, um, I understand that in Maryland, the reason we're having such a problem getting charter schools is that the teachers unions are insisting that the 
teachers in the charter schools be unionized, which of course negates most of what we want to do. My question is, what would you suggest is the means to go about um, giving more power to the parents over the teachers' union so that we can get the charter schools we need in the areas where we need them? I'm not sure in the question you want to foster more non-unionized charter schools or... Right. I, I don't want to see union teachers in charter schools. Right. And in Maryland, the, the uh, obstacle is that the teachers' unions are insisting that charter school teachers well, be unionized. They can insist so how do we, want, right? How do we combat that? Well, I think you can tell stories of how, uh, of, you know, my, my, my first film called The Cartel had an example of a teacher who admitted that although he was a tenured teacher and had taught for 17 years, that he was illiterate. He was functionally illiterate. He actually said he himself said that he read at a third or fourth grade level. And, but he'd always just kind of skated by. And because he was tenured, he could never be fired. There's enough of these stories that are, uh, you know, that are egregious enough that I think, I mean, I think that's, a, that's something a regular person can understand. Most people who went to school had a range of teachers, right? You had great ones, and you had ones kind of in the middle, and you had some sort of lousy ones, right? So, so I, I would, I mean, in, in terms of how to, you know, make the political, political argument to keep charters from unionizing, um, I mean, I would, is that likely in Maryland? I, I would be surprised. They can't get them authorized in the first place at all. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. So in many states, just so, so you guys don't know, uh, charters can only be authorized by the school boards themselves. And many of us refer to it like asking McDonald's to authorize a Burger King. They're actually, you're actually asking them to authorize their own competition. And so there are other places, though, where there are multiple authorizers or alternate authorizers, either the State Department of Education or in 13 states around the country, universities can authorize charter schools in places like Michigan and Minnesota and, and other places. So I would, that would be my, uh, one thing you guys could, uh, could find a legislator in the state to sponsor a multiple, in Maryland, to sponsor a multiple authorizer bill for charters. Yeah, Maryland's a particularly inhospitable state, unfortunately. Yeah, Maryland has, uh, from what I can tell, more fundamental problems of which the, pro the difficulty getting good non-unionized charters are really a symptom. And it seems to me you're going to have to do a lot of work at a much more basic level uh, to get things changed in Maryland, unfortunately. Um, so n there was another question, I think, in back. You, yep, he still has this question, so uh, back row there. Hey, quickly, you said one-party state. Just realize the Democratic Party is having a gigantic civil war over this right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a, in a 2012 Chicago teachers' strike, Karen Lewis, the Sh Chicago Teachers' Union president, called Rahm Emanuel, Barack Obama's former chief of staff, a bully and a liar. And it was very nasty, and they went on strike. And that was, you know, Democrat v. Democrat. Same thing's happening in New York State now between the governor and the mayor. It's Democrat versus Democrat. So it's, it's not quite as simple as party. 
Thanks for coming today, Nico Perino. Um, is there any evidence that the, as a result of these choice initiatives, whether they're school vouchers or online learning or charter schools, that these are actually uh, improving these public schools that they're competing with as a result of competition? Yeah, actually, uh, Paul Peterson uh, referred to that in, uh, was it Paul or was it? Uh, it was all three of them. Patrick Wolf. They were all addressing that, what the president said, which is that there's no meaningful evidence that uh, voucher programs have led to improvements in those communities. So right. not necessarily just the kids but using them. There have been, certainly have been studies, there's plenty of them to find, which show that the competition, once and there, and there is kind of a uh, critical mass effect, right? So you need to lose enough. If you just lose 1% or 2% of your enrollment, eh, keep doing things the way you have. You have really not much incentive to improve. But once it starts getting some sort of threshold, and we could debate what that is, 10%, 20% of the kids are now gone, and now they're worried about the next 10% leaving, that has shown to improve district schools. Mm -hmm. Yep, right there. We'll just hold on for the microphone. Thank you. Um, well, so I was just wondering, within, um, you know, I feel like a lot of times within the public choice, uh, public school choice mission, it's very easy to become, uh, well, you're, you know, anti-teacher almost. Even if we aren't anti-teacher, we're anti-unions to, to a certain extent. Um, with that said, as you were saying before, I mean, everyone knows someone that's a teacher or works in the district, and it's really hard to kind. They they immediately feel like they're the enemy, and so in a lot of ways, it's almost like we're preaching to the choir instead of, um, you know, get gaining new supporters. How would you go about gaining the support for you know public choice with? with teachers. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, uh, you know, for me, the first thing I think of when I hear that is that if you support lots of different kinds of options, uh, you don't have to pick a side. And I get asked all the time about, you know, are charter schools better than district schools or are private schools? How do they compare in, in voucher states like Louisiana or Indiana and uh, Arizona? And our, our side doesn't have to pick a category that we say always is better than the other kind, right? We can just say, yeah, there's good and bad in all of it, and just uh, every parent can make their, and it's not always good versus bad, too. There can be a just different fit for a kid, right? Wouldn't you want a high school that focuses on maybe the things that your student is most interested in? Um, some kids maybe need a high disciplinary environment for a, you know, a military boot camp style school for kids that might need that. Other kids may need more creative uh, environments with no rules because they flourish in those places. You know, so it's not always just good or bad. It's also just a question of fit. But, but in other words, these are all teachers too. If they're in private schools, if they're an online school it, it, and, and they're tutoring there, if they're in a charter school, how, if, we say the, if we support those schools, how are we anti-teacher? Those are teachers too, right? Are they not teachers? I'm like, what, you know, what, what, what are they doing all day, basically, is the first thing, is the first thing I would say to that. And then... Um, um, uh, and so the other thing, too, is that it's like, if it, you know, someone being anti-teacher, um, you know, supporting, supporting restaurant choice doesn't make you anti-waiter, right? You're just, for, you're just for choice. You're just for people picking wherever they want to go, you know? So, so I don't say, we don't have to say that anybody's bad we, as a category.
Yeah, but don't get me started on waiters. Oh boy, um, Neil is anti-waiter. Yeah, by the way. that's Apparently a whole different issue area. Right. Um, the only thing I'd, I'd add to that is that there are these studies that talk about what dissatisfies teachers the most, and it's usually not pay or something like that. It's that they feel constrained by rules and regulations. Oh yeah. And choice is a great way to move away from all these top-down, one-size-fits-all rules and regulations. Um, and with that, the man right in front of the person who just asked the question is next. Um, here comes the microphone. Hi, I'm Eric Bjorn Rasmussen. I come from Sweden. And being a Swede, I have a different angle, and I don't know so much about the American situation. But as you know, Sweden has been um, developing charter school in a grand scale. I would uh, suggest we are on uh, about on on our way to half the schools are are on charter, and that charter is, is supported by state law, by by national law, I should say, as we are in a small country. And um, the money is also regulated, but by that law, it doesn't relate to the schools that are. Um, influenced by the competition. So it's more easy. So my question is now, um, it seems like um, the situation is regulated by federal law, although the schools are regulated by the state. Can you explain to me this uh, uh, situation you have? Well, there's, as Neil knows as well as I do, there's, there's, there's lots of layers to this. I, 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 education in America is still mostly a state and local issue, but there certainly are federal uh, No Child Left Behind programs and uh, Race to the Top and federal Title I monies and whatnot. And, and so there are, there's lots of, and Common Core, one might argue, is an encroaching federal footprint into this realm too. But I, I do think most of this policy is state-driven, and that's why you have places like Arizona with empowerment scholarships accounts. It's called the ESAs. Most of us think of it as education savings accounts, but it's basically a debit card you give the parents. And so there, it's not like a voucher where a voucher sets a tuition level and, you could, and it basically you just go to whatever school will take it. Here, you're given an account of money. You can allocate how you want to spend it to private school tuition to hooked on phonics, to tutoring, saving it for college. You can do anything you want. So it creates pricing pressure on term in, in schools. So, I mean, Arizona's doing stuff like that. Meanwhile, you have states like Kentucky that are doing virtually nothing. They have no charter schools, no vouchers, no anything, you know, in terms of school choice. Uh, uh, so so it, it, that, that's, that's my example to show you that it's mostly state issue when there's such disparities within the country. Well, well. <laughs> first of all, when the president says something wrong, that you have, you have academics ready to just show, what are you talking about? These are the studies we've published. They're peer-reviewed. Here they are, gold-plated uh, 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 methodology in the studies. Like, so it's, it's, it's news to say that the president has been, speaking, has been stating falsehoods. Let's call it that. Be polite. Uh, and so... Why is it important? Because there's also a lot of federal money that goes into states with waivers for No Child Left Behind, with Race to the Top programs like that, with Title I monies that goes to, to poor districts. Uh, and so 
there's a lot of money sloshing around too. That's another reason it's important. Okay, so, boy, we had a lot more questions than I thought. There is a lady in the back, um, second from the back row, and then I'll be sure to hit this section next. Uh, I didn't think we'd go all the way to 7.30, but I guess we will. So could you raise your hand? There there she is. Just warming up right now. We're getting started. Yeah, I didn't know this crowd was going to be so animated. Hi, I'm Carol Osborne. This isn't a question. It's just a statement. I, I wanted to go back to the Maryland thing with the charter schools, and... I don't know about any other state. I've taught in the state of Virginia, among others. I grew up in the Army and went to 14 different public schools and all over the place. But Virginia does not require teachers to belong to the union. So that's, that was my statement. I, just want, I don't know what other states require. Well, federal law, any teacher can quit a union uh, by, by federal precedent. The tr- all that means is, though, it doesn't mean they get all their dues money back. It means they get Oh, small- you don't even have to belong in Virginia. I did not belong to the teachers. Yes, union. that's right. There are some states where, in fact, even Michigan now, believe it or not. Who would have thunk? Michigan so would have gone. Just, I mean, it isn't all the teachers in the public school who may be against, uh, who are represented by unions and therefore are against having choice. Oh, that's true. You know? That's true. And, yeah. and Fairfax County, Arlington County have other schools you can choose in the public system. That's not to say I'm against charter schools. I'm not. And I have grandchildren now, so I'm concerned. And they're in New York, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a group called AAE, Association of American Educators. All they do is offer insurance to teachers who've opted out of the union. And they do, they offer better policies at lower rates uh, for liability insurance. Okay, now I said I'd get this section. Um, sorry to the middle section, but you've already hogged the microphone too long. Um, so we'll go to this man. I'll probably work my way back to the middle. Uh, thank you so much. This was really, really um, <clears throat> informational uh, because I think so often the school choice uh, debate is often completely uh, dominated by charter schools, as if that's the only choice available in the country. And we know from the most recent large-scale study that about a third of them do better than the schools that the children would have gone to otherwise in public schools. And so two-thirds are not doing better than uh, the public schools that they would have re- that they are trying to replace. But I'm just w- curious about the video piece that you showed with regard to the rebuttal to President Obama, both Patrick and Paul um, also did the work in Milwaukee that in fact found that that the vouchers did not have a significant effect on children's reading and math um, progress. And I'm wondering, would it be fair to say that the voucher um, rebuttals were, were somewhat partial? Okay, I love this question. Let's get into it. All right, so first of all, uh, on the credo studies, what you cited from Stanford University, where it says about like a third, a third, a third do better, a third do worse, a third about the same, right? They, did you see last year's uh, expansion of the credo study, which updated the numbers, and they skewed more positive for charters? So, for example, in, in the case of, and they, they, this is a very statistically carefully controlled, demographically controlled study, but for, for black kids in poverty, for example, they showed the kids in charter schools, this is the national number, had on average 36 days more math instruction, learning equivalency, if they were in a charter than the exact same kids not in a charter school. Uh, They had um, more schools and charters perform better than the district schools than there were charters, kids and charters performing 
less well than the district schools. So if you just net it all out, the, uh, the charters were, were better in that study. And there were certainly cer certain pockets of charter schools where the performance was off the charts, very, very solid. In New York City, for example, very strong results in, in a place like that. So um, I would say that overall, in fact, the, the unions, the NEA website, you, on the old, I'm getting so excited, on the old Credo study that was released in 2010, the union posted that study saying, look at this, so many charters are doing you know, no better than the district schools. When they did the new updated Credo study, the unions didn't say a word. They didn't post it up there because it was so pro-charter. But, but, uh, but again, so uh, the large point, though, is that we don't have to defend a category. We say choose what's the, what the best is wherever you are. Um, with respect to the voucher thing, um, the, uh, uh, in Milwaukee, uh, it was a closer uh, learning, as, as you cited correctly, the, 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 the learning advantages between vouchers and the district schools were closer. But you're, you're leaving out some important things. Number one, the district schools are getting between double and triple the money per student as the voucher schools, okay? The, right, so, so they just leave that, I mean, that, the, when the unions cite the stuff, they leave that out. Secondly, the graduation rates were much better. There were eight points better in the, in the voucher schools in, in uh, Milwaukee than the district schools, which you'd say, well, that's, that's uh, you know, not a huge percentage, but to many people, it's, it's, it, they'll take it. It's a, it's a statistically significant uh, graduation, uh, improvement in graduation rates. But nevertheless, the, the main thing about, yeah, so Milwaukee we didn't cite, but it still turns out there's a lot of good to say about the Milwaukee program with, between, with about a third the money per student that the district schools are getting. So, I mean, you know, there's that. When you had, you had Greg Forster on there, yeah. and he did the study for the, it was really a compilation of studies for the Friedman uh, Foundation or Friedman Institute. And there he actually lists, there are studies in that of Milwaukee that have demonstrated that having that choice has led to improvements of the public schools. So it's also important to note, this is kind of a dynamic system. Uh, so you may see kids uh, who are doing better in choice schools or who are better served by choice schools. Uh, but if that's also driving change in the public schools, you're not going to necessarily see a big difference, but that choice is still pretty important. Uh, so uh, let's see, other questions? I mean, if they're uh, really unafraid, make it, the, make it the voucher 100% of the money given the district schools. Let's see what happens then. They're afraid to try that. Why do you think, why do you think so? You know, it's because, it's because it will dramatically widen the gap. So it's total spending divided by total number of students. You're absolutely right. Um, I think uh, I'm shocked we, that we're going to, we have. Endless questions, it seems. I think we have time for about two more. So the man right over there, and then I'll take one more hand so we can go right to you next. And then right over here will be the next. Well, we'll do three, and you too, sir. And then I think we'll be all set. Uh, now i got to remember the order, but. Thank you. Uh, I pick up the best word I heard in this movie, which is empathy. And uh, it comes from... Uh, or there's a spiritual teacher, spiritual master who's not very far from this concept. It was saying that we reproduce the same errors. We have gone to school and learned 
without having been taught how to think. And that is it not now time to teach to the kid how to think so to make them speed their process of learning? Is this is a, a question that uh, is embedded in this uh, reform of the 21st century or not? What do you know about it? I don't understand the question. Yeah, I think the question is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is it time for the schools to focus more on teaching empathy and, and, and just how to think and maybe how to interact with others? I, look, I think I was moved by some, by both how the, uh, the special needs school and also the Catholic voucher school in Cleveland, they talked about some of these kids like you love them and it turns their lives around. They can, in a private school context, they can, they're allowed to do that, basically. Uh, and so I think that that, I think that the... Um, the emotional and and also just the orderly environment that some of these well-run schools can offer kids makes a difference in their lives that is not measured directly by test scores. And I, I've I've seen that myself being in the schools. You can you can walk into a dysfunctional school and feel it. And it just uh, I mean, what do I need to say? Kansas City, forty percent of the kids last between ninth grade and twelfth grade. They leave. They just leave and just go on on the streets and they. Make the you know make their way, and so uh, who's going to defend that? I mean, who in this room? Who in who in a union? Who anywhere is going to defend that system? H how could you say that giving these kids an option to go to any other school is worse than them dropping out and hitting the streets? And most of them in that city are doing it. And in Cleveland, fifty-four percent of the kids graduate high school. How is, how is them dropping out? How is the dropout rate of half the kids uh, preferable to giving them a school that they might actually go to for oftentimes less money? That, it's, the argument's as simple as that. All right, so we have a man right there and then the man in the middle and then it's back to me. Well, I want to go back to one of the points you made. Uh, I'm worried about the politics of school choice. So we fight for school reform and we get school choice and we get a voucher program that pays so much less than the traditional schools get to educate a kid. Or even here in D.C. with this, you know, active charter movement, you get $100 million less to, uh, for that movement than the traditional schools and we can't find facilities for our kids. So... You know, I guess my, the point I'm trying to make is when we fight and we get these things, but we don't get, you know, the full program, aren't we hurting ourselves in a sense that maybe the outcomes are never going to be as good as they could have been? I mean, uh, I, I don't think so. In my mind, in my mind, we, it, there's more every year in our movement. Every year there are more kids in charters than the year, than the year before. Every year there are more kids with brand new statewide voucher programs. Last year, 2013, in Wisconsin... North Carolina, Alabama, Arizona, and Ohio. All those states, brand new voucher programs. Uh, you have every year more kids homeschooled than the year before. Every, kid's more, every year more kids learning online than the year before. So we continue to gain ground, but it's just that we're starting from a small single digit percentage base in terms of kids. Uh, I mean, if you add them all together, it's probably into the teens percentage, but five, about 5% five of kids in charters nationally, you know, about 10% in private schools or whatever, between 10 and 15, something like that. But many of those are just private, privately paid by parents. But, uh, but still, a vast majority of kids have no options but the regular public school they're assigned to by their zip code. And, uh, and yet we, keep, we win more every year in every category. So I'm, I'm, I'm bullish about it, but I just we're not making progress fast enough. 
All right, and then you have the honor of the last question. Thank you. That, since that means I'm between everybody and the buffet, I'll try to be brief. First off, thank you to the Cato Institute for allowing us to attend this evening. Mr. Browden, thank you for the wonderful film. <clears throat> I was particularly interested in your section on Kansas City, since that's where I happen to live. In fact, work about two blocks from where the Kansas City Department of Education lives. Uh, my question is this. As part of the, we've talked about the price and how that does not seem to impact or benefit any students. Has there been any studies that you're aware of that show the direct negative correlation of government involvement with the schools? And I'm thinking particularly for the gentleman from Sweden, Kansas City School District since 1985 has been under direct federal control and one of the few districts in the country that is, and as you said, is absolutely one of the worst school districts in the country. And has had probably the most level of government involvement at a city, county, state, and federal level. Thank you. So, so what's the question, though? So the question is, are, what studies that you might be aware of that would show any kind of correlation, negative or otherwise, between the amount of direct government control over a school district and its performance? Because in this case, yeah, particularly from a federal standpoint, since, as I said, Kansas City is one of the few districts that actually has been under direct federal control, federal since, control. 19, federal control since 1985. I mean, but, right, but I mean, I don't, I don't know whether uh, heavy-handed state and local control is somehow... Uh, panacea or somehow gets you around, you know, is some kind of, I don't know, yellow brick road to some great, you know, ideal. Uh, so I, I, it's uh, w the, the level of government that is thinking up stupid rules in the school to me is not as interesting as how do we get rid of all the stupid rules. So <laughs> thank you for a tiny uh, single hand clapping type applause. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh, there we go. It's a little more enthusiastic. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I uh, yeah, the, and the state takeovers seem to be ineffective, too, when that oh, happens. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not just the fact that it's federal. Yeah. Let, let me put it to you this way. If, let's pretend this was 2004, and I was, and we were having this here. It was it's 10 years ago, and I'm sure we'd all look better and stuff. And uh, so we'd be sitting here, and I'd say, you know, and I'd say, look, look so let's, let's talk about one of the worst school districts in the country. Uh, and not Washington, D.C., which would have been in that list, but one of the worst was New Orleans. And I'd say, I'd say to you in 2004, here's what we need to do. This is my plan. It's the Bob Bowden Choice Media Plan. We need to actually just blow up all the schools. Okay, let's just put bombs in all of them. It'll be midnight. No one will be there. We'll just blow up, actually literally blow all the buildings up. That is my plan. Who's with me? And you guys would think, well, in this crowd, you guys would think I would, I mean, many people would think I'd be an idiot to say that what we really need to do is actually just put bombs in the buildings and blow them up. And that that's actually what happened. Like Katrina in 2005 actually did that. We don't have to wonder what would actually happen. We don't have to wonder. And, it, and proficiency, it's now 90% of kids in New Orleans are in charter schools. The schools all compete with each other. Proficiency rates have over doubled uh, since back then. And, uh, and it's the best thing that could have, it actually was the best thing that could have happened to this district. They blew up all the schools, except the storm did it. And so, uh, I don't know, um, could, could Detroit have this in its future? I don't know. But I'm just saying that, that it's, you know, I, I'm not known as an incrementalist. Uh, I don't think Neil is either, actually. <laughs> I, think, I think it's time, I think it's time that we have, you know, wholesale change. And so in my view is the way to do that is populist messaging with things like media and a daily TV show and films and clips of the president and researchers responding to him, that we need to change more hearts and minds. And, that, uh, and so that's, that's our mission, and, um, and, and that's what I've been doing.
Well, thank you. Um, and I think you're, you're right. Uh, we absolutely do need to change hearts and minds, and you guys are doing a great job of that. Uh, especially your website, I encourage everyone to go to choicemedia.tv. Uh, if for no other reasons, I'm on there a few times, so it's definitely worth your while. Um, uh, and with that, uh, I want to thank everybody, and you, you know, I guess you hear people say this is a cliche, but you really have been a great audience. I've just been amazed at how interactive, how many questions you had. And so your reward, uh, which you would have gotten even if you were a terrible audience, is we have a reception now. You just go right out to our winter garden, beer, wine, I think cheese and crackers, maybe other comestibles. That's this is the reward word? regardless of their performance, much like public schools. Actually, you're giving them a They would have had the bar anyway. We weren't trying to embrace that model, but it, now, now that you've ruined it for us, yes, it's everybody gets something no matter what. Uh, but thank you again for coming, and we look forward to chatting, and I think, Bob, you're staying with us, right? Indeed. So thank you again.